the way, happy birthday to Wendy. Um, has a uh, birthday today of significance. Um, so, uh, happy birthday to Wendy. <clears throat> Many years ago, I left high school to become a motor mechanic. And on my first day on the job, I was given a task to uh, remove a brake booster from a car. And uh, my supervisor was very wise. Uh, he took me to the car, he opened the bonnet, he asked me, he says, do you know what a brake booster is? And he was taking nothing for granted. I was a first year apprentice, my first day on the job, uh, and I confessed. I says, no, I don't. And thankfully he showed me. But whether you're learning to fix cars or learning to use a computer or learning to swim, you have to start with the basics. As gifted as he was, even Mozart had to master the musical scales. And Shakespeare had to learn the letters of the English alphabet before he could write his marvellous plays. It's probably hard for us to believe, but even the most brilliant scientists once belonged to kindergarten. During a half-time prep talk to his discouraged team, NFL coach Vince Lombardi is reported to have picked up a pigskin and said to his discouraged players, Gentlemen, this is a football. Their performance had been so dismal that he had to take it back to square one. And he knew what all competent people have to know. If you want to succeed, you have to know the basics. If you want to know and master those fundamental aspects, those fundamental truths that form the foundation of the task that we seek to complete, the decisions that we need to make, the values that we cherish, the goals we are trying to reach, you've got to know the basics. And if we're wondering why there's so much confusion and destruction in the world today, one reason is because people are ignoring or rejecting the basics, it's like going on a voyage without a compass. It's like trying to perform brain surgery without lights or instruments. The book of Genesis is a book of basics because it's the book of beginnings in the Bible. To know Genesis is to know the fundamental truths, the basics about God, about the world about yourself, about other people, about sin, about salvation, about marriage, about gender, about family and faith and worship and judgment. Inspired by the Spirit of God, Moses wrote the book of Genesis to tell us where we came from and why we are here and what God expects us to do. Moses also explained to us in the book of Genesis how the Jewish nation the people through whom God would reveal himself to the world, how they wrote the Bible and ultimately came to give us a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis is the foundational book of the Bible which the rest of the scriptures are built upon. The book of Genesis is quoted or referred to more than 200 times in the New Testament which means it's important for the New Testament Christian to understand its message. Now, most of us are vitally interested in answering the big questions of life. Where did I come from? And where 
are we going and why are we here and what makes us tick or what is the nature of man and how did we get into this mess and what is our future? What's the future of the world? And we would consider any literature which deals with these questions as relevant and timely and yet preeminent amongst all literature about those big questions of life is the book of Genesis. And this morning we're starting a sermon series in the book of Genesis. We don't plan to cover the whole book at this time, just the first four chapters, which deal with numerous basic things. You can see them outlined for you on the back of the outline sheet. It's going to take us 15 weeks on Sunday mornings. So I hope that you'll stay with us for that. In the evening services beginning next week, we're going to start a new service a series as well. Uh, that one in the book of Revelation. And that is a series which we will be going from chapter 1 all the way through to the very, very end on uh, Sunday evening. So please plan to be part of that uh, important series as well. Genesis in the morning and Revelation in the evening. Sounds like a good program. But today we're introducing our morning series. And uh, this morning I'd like to introduce you to the book of Genesis. Firstly, to note that it is a book of beginnings. If we had to give the book of Genesis a contemporary English title, we might call it the book of beginnings. Or maybe just in the beginning, which is actually what the ancient Hebrews called it. They called it Bereshith, which is the very, very first word in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. It means in the beginning. And the title that we use today, Genesis, comes from a Greek word which means birth. And so the book of Genesis tells the account of the birth of the universe, the heavens and the earth. It tells us how the universe was born. But there are more beginnings in the book of Genesis. Genesis records the beginning of the human family, tracing our family tree all the way back to its roots in Adam and Eve. Genesis also depicts the beginning of human sin following its polluted river right back to its fountainhead in the Garden of Eden. And further, through the family history of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Genesis draws up the beginnings or the blueprints of God's great plan of salvation for a fallen humanity. And though it doesn't name him, Genesis begs for a saviour. Genesis promises a saviour. And Genesis, if we read it rightly, can lead us to the saviour of the world, whose name is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Genesis teaches us about the beginning of the world, the beginning of the human race, the problem of sin and God's plan for salvation. And each of these themes, which are vitally important to the rest of biblical and human history, finds its origin in the book of Genesis. That means that Genesis is a very significant book and our study of it will be extremely important for our understanding of God and of ourselves and of the Bible and of our world. So Genesis is a book about beginnings. Secondly, Genesis is a book about God. In the beginning, God is the opening statement of the Bible. If we try to go back before the world 
sprang into being, we find God. If we ask where the world came from, Genesis gives us the answer. God. If we wonder why the universe continues to operate in an orderly, timely, predictable fashion, the answer that Genesis provides for us is God. And as we ponder how all the ancient information has been preserved and passed down to us, again, the answer is God, who gave all this truth to Moses and had, it, had him record it for the ages. And so perhaps the best modern title of the book of Genesis would be, In the Beginning, God. And it's certainly no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence in the Bible because God's name Elohim dominates that whole first chapter occurring some 32 times in 31 verses. If we add to that the personal pronouns for God used in chapter 1, we find that God is mentioned 43 times in the chapter. And this chapter, indeed the entire book of Genesis, is about God from first to last. And to read it any other way is to misread it. And it's not just the book of Genesis that's about God. G.C. Alders writes, and I quote, The first words of scripture purposefully lift our hearts on high to God. In this way, it becomes apparent from the outset that Holy Scripture in its very nature is a revelation of God. And first of all, the revelation of God as creator. When we read the Bible, God is revealing himself to us. God wants us to know him. God takes the initiative. God wants us to know him. And that's what Genesis does. Page by page, God reveals more and more of himself to us. He wants us to know him more and more and more. And that raises a question about your relationship with God. God has revealed himself to us. He wants us to know him. Do you know him? Do you know God? Do you know his nature? Do you know his character? Do you know his will? Do you know his purpose? Do you know him as a person? Do you know him personally? Do you know his purpose for your life? Do you know how to be in his favour? How can you afford not to know? During the years 1642 to 1649... A group of leading theologians met in Westminster Abbey to devise a doctrinal statement for England. The result was the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the character of the theologians that worked on that is indicated by how they approached the second question of their shorter catechism, which asked the question, what is God? Historian William Herring Herrington relates that each of those men felt inadequate to provide a suitable definition. They shrank from the sacred task in awestruck reverential fear. And the suggestion was made to proceed with this matter, showing humility by having <clears throat> one of the youngest members present to offer his view. This young minister declined but when pressed, he asked permission to pray aloud. And Harrington reports this. Harrington reports this, and I quote, 
Then in slow and solemn accents, he thus began his prayer. O God, thou art a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in thy being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And when he ceased praying, the first sentence, that first sentence of his prayer was immediately written down by one of the brethren. It was read and it was adopted as the most appropriate answer that they could produce. Now, I think this, this incident illustrates two vital points about the knowledge of God. The first point is that knowing God is the highest endeavour of mankind. We can see this when we open our Bible and we turn to the very, very first words in the beginning, God set before us in the opening verse set before us is the great subject matter of the Bible in its entirety. Indeed, the great subject matter of all of life. Jesus himself said, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God. When scripture takes us back to the beginning, we find that God is there. At the very heart of the Christian worldview is the knowledge of God. And Charles Spurgeon emphasized this priority in his very first sermon in the beginning of his historic 38-year ministry in London in 1854. The 19-year-old Spurgeon declared the, the central importance of knowing God. This is what he said in one of his sermons. First sermon. He said, the highest science... The loftiest speculation, the, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of the child of God is, is the name and the nature and the person and the work and the doings and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. It's a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of God. And it's little wonder that springing from such opening words, Spurgeon's ministry would be so remarkably blessed by God's power. And while Spurgeon points out the glorious value of studying and knowing God, we also must point out the perilous position of those who neglect to know God. Or in the words of Romans chapter 1, who suppress the knowledge of God. One theologian says, and I quote, the, word, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place. And life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business. Disregard the study of God. And you sent yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life or lose your soul. This being the case, whenever we, we study the Bible, whether it is here in church or whether it be in a small group or whether we are opening the Bible privately, the one question that we must always ask is this, what is this telling me? What is this teaching me about God? And as we come to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, it's most fitting that we would ask this question. What is this verse teaching us about God? In the beginning, God 
created the heavens and the earth. Genesis is a book of beginnings. Genesis is a book about God, about his nature and his works. Thirdly, Genesis is a book about the world and how we are to understand it. What you believe or what you don't believe about the book of Genesis will is determinative in the development of your worldview. That is because what you do with Genesis largely determines your answers to questions like, where did I come from? Where did the world come from? What is the purpose of me being on earth? Is there a God? And if so, what are my obligations to him? Why is the world as messed up as it is? Is there a solution? How a person answers those questions forms the foundation of his worldview, his basic approach to life, which he or she holds. And if we want to think honestly about which is the right worldview, we must take seriously the book of Genesis. Furthermore, if we want to persuade our friends that the biblical God-centered worldview is the correct worldview, then we must understand Genesis and we must be able to dialogue intelligently with people about it. And if that seems too far-fetched, just think through Genesis chapter 1 with me for a moment. From the very first page of the Bible, we may directly address hot-button issues like evolution, the sanctity of human life, that is abortion or euthanasia, the relationship between the sexes. Questions about various world religions are addressed in the opening verse, in the opening ten words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that sublime subs, uh, statement, God sweeps aside atheism by asserting his existence. He sweeps aside polytheism by declaring himself to be one. He sweeps aside pantheism by separating himself from matter. What you believe about Genesis chapter 1 will go a long way in determining how you deal with the red hot issues of today, which are so important to us at the moment. And the same applies to our understanding of the rest of Genesis. The origin of the world, the place of work, the existence of suffering, the question of race, the nature of science, the fact of judgment, the future of nations... All these questions find wonderful answers in the book of Genesis. What you believe about Genesis and how familiar you are with it decisively shapes your worldview and your understanding of Genesis also goes a long way to helping you understand the rest of the Bible, which is our fourth heading there. Genesis is a book which is foundational to the rest of Scripture. What really is sin? Why is it so bad? And why does, what does Paul mean when he styles Jesus as a, a second Adam in Romans 5 or the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15? And was God sending his son into the world merely a reaction to human sin or was it something that was planned all along? And is the idea of a trinity simply a New Testament realisation? And who was this person, Abraham, who is mentioned so often as an example of faith? 
And what was Jesus talking about when he urged his disciples to remember Lot's wife? And why did Jesus take the people back to the book of Genesis when answering a question about divorce? All these Bible questions and more can only be fully answered by studying Genesis. It is very significant that Genesis has been termed the seed plot of the Bible. For in the book of Genesis we have in seed form almost all of the great doctrines which are afterwards fully developed in the rest of the scripture. For instance... It's in Genesis that we have the first hint of the Trinity, of the plurality of persons within the Godhead. Genesis 1 verse 26, let us make man in our image. In Genesis, the wiles of the devil are exposed. Paul says we're not ignorant of his devices. One of the reasons is because God has given us the book of Genesis. Where we see in his opening manifestation, he calls into question the word of God, casting doubts on its integrity, its veracity. He calls into question the character of God, casting doubts on his wisdom and love and care. In the book of Genesis, the truth of salvation is typically displayed. Our fallen first parents are clothed by God himself, clothed with skins. And to procure those skins, death had to come in. Blood had to be shed. An innocent was slain in the stead of the guilty. And only thus could man's shame be covered. And only thus could the sinner be fitted to stand before a thrice holy God. In Genesis, the truth of justification by faith. Yeah, that's a, that's a Romans doctrine. That's a New Testament doctrine. In the book of Genesis, the truth of justification by faith is first made known. Genesis 15 verse 6. And he, that's Abraham, believed in the Lord and the Lord counted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God. It doesn't say Abraham obeyed God or Abraham loved God or served God. But Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. And if his righteousness was counted to Abraham, it's because he had none of his own that was acceptable to God. Believing God, righteousness was reckoned to Abraham's account. In Genesis, the need for separation is clearly illustrated. Enoch's lot was cast in days where evil abounded but he lived apart from the evil of the world, walking with God day by day. Abraham was called to separate himself from the idolatrous Chaldeans and to step out in obedience to the promise of God. Lot is held before us as a supreme example and an unfortunate example of the dire consequences of being unequally yoked together with unbelievers and of having fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. In Genesis, God's disciplinary chastisements upon erring believers is portrayed. We certainly see that in the case of Lot. And Jacob, too, is a standing example of what happens to the child of God who walks after the flesh rather than after the spirit. In Genesis, we're shown the importance and value of prayer. In chapter 18, Abraham prayed to God... And Lot's life was spared. 
In chapter 20, Abraham again prayed to God and Abimelech's life was spared. In chapter 24, Abraham's servant prays. And God answers his prayer to secure a wife for Isaac. Isaac prays for his wife and unborn children. And the Lord answers. And Jacob too prays and God answers. In Genesis, the saints' rapture into heaven is vividly portrayed. Enoch, the man who walked with God, was not, for God translated him. He didn't pass through the portals of death. He was suddenly removed from the scenes of sin and suffering. He was transported in the realm of glory without seeing death. In Genesis, the divine incarnation is first declared. The coming one would be supernaturally begotten. He would be entering into the world as none other did. He was to be the son of man, yes, but to have no human father. The one who bruised the serpent's head was to be the seed of the woman. In Genesis, the death and resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus are strikingly foreshadowed by the ark in which Noah and his family were brought safely through the deluge of death to begin a new life. Isaac, the beloved son of Abraham, at the bidding of his father, is laid unresistingly upon an altar. And from it, Abraham received him back as a figure of one who was dead. In Genesis, we also learn of the Saviour's coming exaltation. This is strikingly typified in the history of Joseph. Who provides us with a very, very complete portrayal of Christ. Who after a period of humiliation and suffering was exalted to be ruler over all Egypt. Jacob too on his deathbed declared that Shiloh unto him shall the gathering of the people be. In Genesis the priesthood of Jesus Christ is anticipated. The Lord Jesus Christ is a priest not after the Aaronic order but after the order of Melchizedek and it is in Genesis that this mysterious character who received tithes and blessed Abraham is brought before our view. In Genesis we first read of God giving the land of Canaan to Abraham and to his seed. Chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. Chapter 13, verse 15, for all the land that thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. In Genesis, the wondrous future of Israel is made known. The Lord said to Abraham, chapter 13, verse 16, I'll make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man may number the dust of the earth, then, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Chapter 22, verse 18, and thy seed... In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In Genesis, the judgment of God upon the unrepentant is solemnly exhibited. Cain complained that his judgment was greater than he could bear. The flood that came upon the world of the ungodly swept all away. The fire and brimstone that descended upon Sodom and Gomorrah till naught but ashes remained. Lot's wife, for her act of rebellion... It's turned into a pillar of salt. All of this is marvellous proofs of the divine authorship of the Bible. 
Who but the one who knows the end from the beginning, beginning could have embodied in seed form what would then be expanded and amplified in the rest of the Bible? What a wonderful demonstration that behind it all, behind all of the scripture is one superintending mind guiding the pens of men who are inspired to write the scriptures. Genesis is the account of beginning. One that impacts our entire worldview. One that impacts our understanding of God, our understanding of the Bible as a whole. But Genesis is also a book about people. Who are the main characters in the book of Genesis? Well, the list of characters, main characters, must first of all begin with God. After all, he is the one who begins, ends and carries along this magnificent history. He spoke the universe into being. He declared it good. He looked upon mankind who rebelled. He pronounced both the curse upon mankind and the promise to redeem us. He presided over the flood. He rescued Noah. He called Abraham to be the father of many nations. He led him to the land of Canaan. He kept the chosen family tree alive through the miraculous birth of Isaac. He blessed Jacob and made his family into a great nation through whom the Saviour would come. So God is the primary character of the book of Genesis. But the first human character which we encounter is obviously Adam. Chapters 1 to 3. The first human being made from the dust of the ground. Placed in authority over God's created earth. Given a wife to be his helper. Communing unhindered with God. Eventually falling into sin. And bringing upon a race of men and women, breeding a race of men and women, bent on repeating his folly. Perhaps the next most memorable character in Genesis is Noah, chapter 6. Chapter 6 through 9. A sinner like us, Noah, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And when the fallout of Adam's sin had gone so far to fill the whole earth, God planned a worldwide flood to cleanse the earth and he let Noah know about his plan. And he planned for Noah to build a great ark. And God kept Noah and his family and all the animals safe inside the ark while the rest of the world perished. And Noah then, like Adam, became a single seed to which all subsequent families of the earth would trace their family tree. God's plan to rescue mankind eventually shifted from Noah to Abram. Later called Abraham, chapters 12 to 23. God called this man out of Mesopotamia to become the father of a great nation. Sent him on a pilgrimage to the nation's future home. Gave him, gave him and his wife, his 90-year-old wife, a miracle baby to get the family started. His trust in God's promises, his obedience to some of the things that God asked him to do, which was quite difficult, to be honest. His willingness to go wherever God called him. Abraham became, for every generation since, the supreme example of what it means to have faith in God. Abraham's son was Isaac. He also was a man of faith. Isaac also followed the Lord after his father Abraham and gave verse gave birth to a son who was destined to carry on the lineage of God's chosen nation. Isaac's son was called Jacob. 
Chapters 25 through 36 speak about him. This one-time rebellious teenager deceived his father, stole from his brother, dishonoured his father-in-law. And yet he would eventually meet God face to face and forever be changed. His name was changed to Israel, from which the chosen nation eventually drew its name. Jacob or Israel had 12 sons. And Genesis 37 to 50 focuses our attention on the 11th of the 12, Joseph. It was a little bit of a problem child to begin with. But Joseph was taken by God through various difficult providences. Each of them served to teach us about how faithful God is to work all things together for good for his people. Both individual people like Joseph and his collective people as a whole. And though he couldn't see it, Joseph's individual struggles set the stage for his entire family the whole tiny nation of Israel, to be preserved and to be protected, ultimately preparing the pathway for the most important person in the book of Genesis, that is our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And brethren, isn't a Saviour needed? Isn't a Saviour needed? And as we just step back and examine the picture, the, the, the whole picture of the, the prominent people in the book of Genesis... In regard to people, in regard to man, the book of Genesis is very eloquent. Man is at the same, the same time truly wonderful and truly awful. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, man is remarkable in his created perfection. But the bulk of Genesis affirms our terrible sinfulness. And even the best of the patriarchs are helpless and hopeless sinners. Not one of them ever merits salvation. But thankfully and mercifully, Genesis is also a book about Jesus. Is Jesus really a character in the book of Genesis? Absolutely. In the days following his resurrection, thousands of years after the events of Genesis are recorded, Jesus walked unrecognized along the road to Emmaus with two he met two disconsolate disciples and seeing their distress over the death of what they thought was their Messiah, it says that Jesus beginning at Moses and in all the prophets expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And as we walk through the pages of scripture, as we walk through the pages of Genesis, Particularly in the book of Genesis, we see how through the characters and the accounts that it records, this first book of Moses prophesies about Jesus and typifies Jesus and foreshadows Jesus and prepares the way for Jesus and shows us universally, conclusively, our need for Jesus. Finally, Genesis is a book about salvation. A book about salvation, which we know from the New Testament is not by works, but by grace. We know this from the book of Genesis 2. Adam and Eve are punished for their sin, but, but graciously God withholds the immediate death penalty. Cain is banished from his family. But graciously... God puts a mark upon him to protect him. 
The flood comes, but God graciously preserves the human race through Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis chapter 19, Lot is dragged to safety, having found grace, the Bible says, almost in spite of himself. Abraham received the gracious promise that through him and his descendants, all nations of all the people of the earth would be blessed. And then the patriarchal period, which was full of ups and downs, brethren, unfolds the fulfillment of God's gracious promise. Despite their repeated sins, God's promise stands. Genesis is about grace. And the Apostle Paul's famous statement, where sin abounds, grace does much more about, sums up the major theme of Genesis. Genesis, far from being a faded page, fallen from antiquity, it breathes relevant grace of God. Salvation in Genesis is not by works, but by grace. It's not by works, but through faith. Again, that's a New Testament doctrine. We see it in Genesis. As we've noted, the bulk of Genesis affirms our terrible sinfulness. Even the best of the patriarchs are sinners. None of them ever merit salvation. And so we understand from the very, very beginning that salvation could only come through faith. And Moses makes it very, very clear. This is how Abraham, the father of the patriarchs, the greatest of the patriarchs, was saved. He believed in the Lord. He counted to him for righteousness, Genesis 15, verse 6. And Paul would allude to this multiple times in the New Testament saying of Abraham in Romans that the purpose of Abraham being justified by faith was that he might be the father of all who believe that righteousness might be imputed to us also. There is only one way for fallen humanity to be saved. It's the Genesis way. It's by faith. There's never been another. Genesis teaches us that salvation is by grace. It's through faith. And it's for fellowship. What Adam lost, God's salvation restores. What we find in Genesis is that salvation is much more than just being accepted by God. It's much more than being declared righteous. It's much more than justification. Full grown, it's intimacy with God. Enoch, of him it is said that he walked with God. Abraham is described as the friend of God. And Jacob, face to face with God, actually wrestled with God. And this kind of intimacy is not that of you know, like-mindedness alone, but it was actually the pledge of a, relation, a covenant relationship in which God promised, I will be their gods. And the man responds by saying, yes, God shall be my God. Covenant relationship. It's a consequence of salvation. Genesis teaches us what we find in the New Testament. Salvation is by grace. It is through faith. It is for fellowship. It is unto good works. The, rare, the, the realm of character and manward conduct that we know is associated with salvation and being a new creature. 
We find that in Genesis, and again it goes beyond more imputed righteousness. It's righteous living. It's not just a declaration before God, it's how we live before men. In the lawless age, Noah stood alone for his godly integrity. And in contrast with Sodom, Abraham shunned even its wealth for God's sake. Abraham's intercession for Sodom, like Judah's intercession for Benjamin, these exhibit a selfless concern, the mark of which is the mark of the disciple of Jesus Christ. While Joseph's patience and his purity and his wisdom and his love for his enemies are quite what we might call in the vernacular of the New Testament quite Christ-like. Salvation is by grace. It is through faith. It is for fellowship. It is unto good works. We find this in the book of Genesis and we also find the book of Genesis that it is forever. God's salvation is forever. In Genesis, the believer's security is strikingly illustrated. The flood of divine judgment descends upon the earth, swallows up all the guilty inhabitants, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he is safely preserved in the ark into which God called him and into which God shut him in, where he was safe. Hebrews tells us, That the patriarchs were strangers and pilgrims upon this earth and their inheritance and the assurance of it was that there was for them a heavenly city whose builder and maker was God. And whilst they had no earthly inheritance, that was reserved in heaven for them. So in conclusion, brethren, having learned so much about God and his working and his ways. In the most basic introduction to the book of Genesis, we have to wonder how much more we keep learning about God as we continue in our studies, as we continue in our reading. I do pray that you do that in your personal readings and with us every Sunday morning for the next little while. But how should God's creation, how should God's created creatures respond to all of these things? Clearly, all of these things call for a deep self-abasement of ourselves before God's awesome majesty. And it highlights our obligation to offer God submissive worship. Truly, as it says in the book of Psalms, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And one of our beloved hymns helps us to praise our great God in an appropriate way. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder. Consider all the works thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my saviour God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. And brethren, when we get to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when we get to the end of the Bible, we find that this impulse to worship God as creator is fulfilled by heavenly beings in glory. Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for Thou hast created all things. 
and for thy pleasure they are and were created. This makes the point, brethren, that our calling to worship God is grounded in the fact that God is our creator. And while every Christian has abundant reason to praise God because he is our saviour and redeemer, everyone has reason to praise God because he is our creator. A.W. Pink exclaims, and I quote, The wondrous and infinite perfections of such a being call for reverent worship. If men, might, if men of might and renown claim the admiration of the world, how much more should the power of the Almighty fill us with wonderment and homage? And just as the Bible concludes with songs of eternal praise to God as our Creator and our Redeemer, so also will history consummate in worship. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. Genesis <clears throat> records the beginning of all things. And maybe our study of it together and your reading of it in private, in private might be the beginning of something new in your life. Perhaps the renewal of your love and appreciation for the one who made us and who has redeemed us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the Bible. I thank you for the way it begins. Thank you for what you Reveal to us concerning yourself in the very, very first chapter, indeed the very, very first verse, the first word. In the beginning, God. Lord, I do pray that uh, uh, we would grow uh, in our sense of wonder of your creation, your power to create, your wisdom to create, Lord, your, the, the means whereby you sustain all things perfectly, moment by moment. Father, I do pray that the wonder of your creation would also for us be accompanied by a wonder of salvation and redemption that you have provided for us wonderfully. Same salvation consistently throughout all of history whether we look forward or whether we look back, it's all because of the person of Christ and how wonderful he is and you are to provide such a glorious salvation. Lord, I do pray that we would respond appropriately. I pray that our worship in spirit and in truth, Lord, would be that which brings you pleasure and causes your glory to be proclaimed, not just to one another, but uh, indeed uh, far and wide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.